My name is Cyrus. I'm a student who believes in empowering education. And you're listening to Awakening the Unawakened Show, a weekly podcast where important people share important messages. Welcome, cute and amazing folks for brand new Awakening the Unawakened Show's episode. How are you all doing today? Hope you're doing great as always. Have you ever felt like an imposter? I've sometimes had. And you know, those sort of thought patterns that everyone has every now and then that suggest that you do not deserve whatever you may have achieved. Or maybe just this, that sense of fear of deceiving others because you're not really as good as they expect you to be. So that friend has a name. And let me introduce you to the so-called imposter syndrome. So how is imposter syndrome defined as? It is defined as a psychological phenomenon in which people are unable to internalize their accomplishments, basically, and as previously mentioned, some of you may find familiar thoughts like I don't belong here or someone must be someone must have made a mistake when they chose me. Or I only got there because I'm I was lucky. Or simply being unable to internalize a sense of accomplishment, competence or skill. So it is usually experienced by high achieving individuals. And so it is a common and challenging experience in an academic or work-related environment. But don't fool yourself. Our own thoughts can be our best friend and our worst enemy. And this is something that affects people across all races, all genders and all ages. It is also most commonly found across those who are taking on a new activity or environment. The first step to fighting it is easy enough, just simply acknowledging imposter syndrome as a common feeling built into, into human psyche. So let's get into the topic. People are described as suffering from imposter syndrome when they are really, when they are successful by external measures, such as exam results, but they feel like those external markers are unwarranted and that they therefore risk being revealed as an imposter. So imposter syndrome is undeniably also important as a source of pain and anxiety for those who suffer from it, and as an obstacle to people's flourishing in their lives and careers. But how can someone get to suffer from it? Well, imposter syndrome involves negative attitudes to one's own performance or skill. Let's call this imposter attitudes. Moreover, imposter attitudes must be in some way mistaken. After all, someone who is generally an imposter and knows this is not suffering from imposter syndrome. This is obvious. It is key to distinguish between two different types of imposter attitudes, maybe even three. The first one is specific and past-directed, targeting particular past performance or projects. For instance, someone may think that the essay he has written is a poor piece of work, that his acting performance last night was irrelevant, or that his contributions to today's meeting were irrelevant too. Other imposter attitudes are specific and future-directed, targeting performances and projects yet to come. So imposter syndrome can thereby contribute to performance anxiety or nerves. These are really well known to everyone. And future-directed imposter attitudes are, of course, compatible with past-directed imposter attitudes. Someone may think that her comments today were irrelevant and that she will do no better tomorrow. So it's like a, a cycle. But they can come apart 
A central pattern of important thinking runs as follows. I did a good job today, but that was just a matter of luck or preparation, and I won't be so successful again tomorrow. Such future-directed important attitudes are not based on doubts about the quality of past performance. But a third type of imposter attitude targets underlying skill, competence or talent. Someone may accept that he has managed to produce a good piece of work and that he will continue to do so, yet fail to attribute this to his own competence. Rather, she or he attributes his success to simply luck, to being in the right place at the right time, to support from others or maybe to personal charm, or to just sheer hard work, you know? So most people who are prone to imposter thinking will have some combination of negative past-directed, future-directed, and, of course, competence-directed attitudes, which are the three that we just talked about. So another issue that often triggers imposter syndrome is focusing on meeting absolute or relative standards. For example, someone who worries about meeting absolute standards may be helped to notice how imperfect everyone else is. Someone who worries about meeting relative standards, though, may be helped to focus more on succeeding in his own terms. So imposter syndrome involves imposter attitude, that's clear. But not everyone who holds imposter attitudes has imposter syndrome. Two further factors are important. The first one is quantity. It is entirely normal to have an imposter attitude from time to time. This is indeed something that we all have. And it even seems like a healthy check on self-aggrandizement or complacency. Someone who never doubts their own capacities is either wildly arrogant or else severely underusing their talents. It is only when imposter syndrome or imposter attitudes are frequent and persistent that we may be in the territory of imposter syndrome. And frequent and persistent is domain relative. This means someone might suffer imposter syndrome at work, yet feel confident in their creative hobby or in other environments. The other key factor is error. Imagine someone who is terrible at his job, has plenty of evidence that he's terrible at his job, and on that evidence believes that he's terrible at his job. This person doesn't have imposter syndrome, though. He has other problems. For imposter attitudes to adapt to imposter syndrome, they must be in some way misplaced, mistaken, or inappropriate. And this is not the case with the other example. Are you then someone who suffers from imposter syndrome? Here are some four different easy-to-follow easy strategies that may help you. So let's get into them. Strategy number one, track your accomplishments. So this is key because tracking your accomplishments in a format where you can review them over time is vital because it helps you check on yourself and see how well you did last time, for instance. It doesn't have to be really long. Something short will do the job. But just make sure it's easy to check over and over. Over time, basically, and accessible. Because, you know, if you if you have a, an attack, let's say an imposter, imposter syndrome attack, and you want to check those, those logs, and they're just impossible to access, or you've lost them, then it's, it's not, not a good job, you know? Not a good thing. Obviously, you need to know where to look at them and where to save them. So strategy number two, compare with care. There's a relative a related cognitive bias to imposter syndrome. This is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Quoting directly from a study, 
the miscalibration of incompetent stems of the incompetent, sorry, stems from an error about the self, whereas the miscalibration of the highly competent stems from an error about others. End quote. So the first half of this is pretty easy to see. So people who are new at something do not know how much more there is to learn. So they often rate themselves as competent. And that's something beneficial, actually, because as it lets us keep learning new things without initial discouragement. But the second half of this part, that stalls our learning and process and progress. So once you start to gain enough skill to judge what a terrific skill would look like, you realize how far away that might be. You then see others who are considerably more skilled than you are, and discouragement can easily set in. So that's why you must compare and compete and compete against yourself. This helps stop comparisons against others, which is a common recurring trigger for imposter syndrome. Moving into strategy number three, and is set goals. Whenever you compare against yourself, it helps to have set goals. You can see how you're doing and what you set out to do in a day, in a month, or in a year. It is important to never lower your self-expectations based on imposter syndrome. Set your goals high, if you, even if you missed them from time to time. It's just normal. Failure after strong effort is a part of trying hard, and learning to fail is an important skill to build, and to obviously have. So last but not least, strategy number four, avoid self-sabotage. So your tracking obviously needs to be honest. If something fails, don't be negative, but do not excuse yourself from accountability. Do not dwell on failures, but do a quick retrospective analysis to help avoid the same failure going forward. So the post-mortem is a technique, even used at Google, you know, to learn from failure. And the post-mortem from post-death, basically, is a concise, concise written document that explains the following. So, number one, you might, you, you even may want to take note from this and write it even if you want to make one. So, number one, what went wrong? Add enough detail to bring it back to mind later. So, number two, the cost of it going wrong. How bad was it? Number three, a triage list. What tasks do you have to do to fix it? And number four, a preventative list. What can you change so that this will not happen again? There's obviously no punishment or negativity in a post-mortem. Punishing ourselves for failures does not help most people learn to succeed. And stick that, and let me read it again. Punishing ourselves for failures does not help most people learn how to succeed. And maybe by following some of these strategies, you experience some improvements. We're reaching the end of today's episode, folks. Hope you've enjoyed and learned something about the unknown realm of psychology and human psyche. If you haven't already done so, I recommend you follow us on Twitter at Unawakened Show. Meanwhile, that's all for today, folks. Again, thank you for tuning in. This is your host, signing off.